Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. Why are we still so curious about Mars? This month on Naked Astronomy, we're looking into Martian matters to find out how we got to where we are today, ushering in a new era of Martian discoveries from the Mars Science Laboratory. I'm Ben Valsler, and I'm joined again by Dominic Ford. Also coming up, we'll examine the evidence for liquid lakes below the surface of Titan and take on your space science questions. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. New pictures of Mars sent from Curiosity, the Mars Science Laboratory, which landed in an incredible feat of engineering earlier this month, are once again stoking public excitement about the Red Planet. Recently on the Naked Scientist podcast, we discussed the plans for the rover and what it's hoping to find at the landing site. You can find that at thenakedscientists.com slash podcasts. Now, Curiosity is just the latest in a long line of space missions to Mars. By my count, I think, incredibly, it's the 34th spacecraft we've launched to Mars. Joining us to explain some of the history of Mars missions is Oxford University Emeritus Professor of Physics, Fred Taylor. Fred, welcome to the show. Why does Mars have such an appeal to space scientists? Well, I think the uh, main reason is that it's another world and it's close by. And uh, when we look at it, we see uh, a lot of parallels with the Earth. So there's a there's a basic excitement just about uh, traveling to other worlds. And I, I think a lot of us have been brought up on science fiction concepts of Mars as well, and we'd like to know the truth. From my own point of view, I started out in Earth atmosphere science, and we're all very obsessed at the moment with things like climate change and so on, which involves understanding the physics of atmospheres. And you can learn a lot about that as well by taking another example. One of the problems with the Earth is, you know, we we have the one example to examine and we're worried about change and we'd quite like to experiment with it. We'd we'd like to change it so we can see what happens. But of course, that's not so nice if you're trying to live on the surface. A second best to that would be to look at the behavior on an Earth-like planet. And here we have Mars, which has undergone enormous climate change. We know that. And uh, Venus, which has a serious greenhouse effect. So we like to look at those and look at the Earth as a member of a family. I guess also you don't have the very long travel time that you have a spacecraft travelling to the outer gas giants. Yes, that's true. Uh, and, and of course, the gas giants are not really very Earth-like. I mean, they're fascinating. There's all sorts of exciting things going on. And uh, Titan, which uh, you're uh, discussing later, is a very Earth-like body in many ways. But uh, if you really are, are trying to uh, sandwich the Earth between planets that are hotter and colder, but with very similar kind of climate mechanisms going on, you choose Mars and Venus. But Mars has always been everybody's favorite because uh, Venus is covered with cloud. Uh, The surface is too hot to be hospitable. Mars is a bit on the cold side, but not so bad that we couldn't uh, walk around there. And one of these days we will, and everybody knows that, and we're all looking forward to that. You've alluded to the science fiction angle, but of course, long before we could go and explore Mars for ourselves, we had images of Mars and the famous story of the canals on Mars as well. So have these sorts of things helped to stoke our interest in it, knowing that it's been part of popular culture for as long as we've been able to see it? Yes, I think it has. Of course, now we're in the space age. It's a different kind of game. But for centuries, uh, people, of course, are fascinated about Mars. They uh, assumed it was it was Earth-like in many ways and that there was probably life there and that uh, one could travel there if only you had the, the means, which were not quite available then, but they are now. And uh, the amount of speculation that's gone on through human history is just going to the earliest times uh, is, is very great. Now we have the, the luxury of actually solving questions that people have asked for centuries. I always find it fascinating quite how young our modern understanding of Mars is. I recently found myself browsing a copy of Encyclopedia Britannica from the 1960s, which told me that whilst there probably weren't animals on Mars, there might well be plants. I guess the data from the first spacecraft must have come as quite a rude shock to the author of that article. Yes, I think it did. Uh, There was a a really quite solid belief. Uh, It was recently as when I was a child, and I like to think I'm not that old, 
that there probably was vegetation on the surface of Mars. By that time, everyone knew the atmosphere was fairly thin and that the surface was pretty cold by Earth standards and pretty dry by Earth standards. But it was still thought that some sort of tough moss or lichen could grow on Mars. There were various phenomena that you could see through telescopes that did indeed look like vegetation. There were seasonal changes on the surface of Mars, the so-called wave of darkening and changes in the polar caps and so on, that really seemed quite consistent with the idea of some plant life. Turns out now that, uh, of course, what we were observing were inorganic phenomena. They were, they were meteorological uh, changes with the seasons rather than than life. And the canals went away when uh, when the views of Mars got better, particularly from the first spacecraft. Now, it's interesting that shortly after the space race, the exploration of Mars seemed to go out of fashion. In fact, I think after the successful Viking 2 landing in 1975, there wasn't another successful mission until 1996. Was that merely that the funding ran out at the end of the space race? Not exactly, no. Um, it was it was 76, actually. I was, uh, I was at JPL then and uh, watched it all happen. That was my, my first involvement in Mars missions when I was a young postdoc. And there was huge excitement uh, about Viking, the first landings, the first views of the surface. And the problem with Viking, of course, was that uh, everything worked beautifully, but the expectation that uh, some kind of life would be detected, bacteria at the very least, was dashed. And I think that disappointment set the program back quite a bit, not so much because people didn't think it was worth going there, but because you had to sort of regroup and think, well, we've thrown everything at it and it didn't work, so uh, we've got to approach the whole thing differently. That's part of it, I think. Uh, and there was an element of disappointment, I think. People you know, really thought that when you landed and did some decent experiments, you probably would find some kind of life, uh, and we didn't. But uh, I think the other part of it was you know, that the space shuttle was under development then, and NASA's money was, was going into that very heavily, and it was having a lot of problems under, under development. Plus, uh, the commitment was being made at that time also to um, start uh, flying missions further afield to the outer solar system, which again was very expensive. So Mars just sort of edged its way under the back burner a little bit for a while, but it never really went away and it came back strongly. So in the modern age of Martian exploration, what are the big science questions we're trying to answer? Well, it depends who you are. Every, everybody thinks of the life question and I think that you know that has to be the top of everybody's list. For me, as I alluded earlier, uh, coming from a background of studying the Earth's climate and we're currently studying climate on, on Venus and indeed on Titan, we uh, want, certainly want Mars to be part of that suite because we know there's been enormous climate change on Mars. There's, the evidence there shows larger changes in the climate than any evidence we have anywhere else, including Earth. So there's a powerful climate change mechanism on this Earth-like planet, which you know where the physics of the climate and the atmosphere are very similar to the Earth which we would like to go and understand. So in terms of my day-to-day -day work, that, that's top of the list for me. On top of that, there's um, the, the whole question of understanding the origin and evolution of the Earth and the planets and the solar system. We'd all like to understand that, and Mars is a key part of that, so we need to gather data that helps us to understand where the whole thing came from and how it evolved. Finally, there's the pure exploration aspect, I think, you know, just uh, because it's there kind of thing. So what's the evidence for this climate change and how have spirit and opportunity helped us to understand it? Oh, the, the, the evidence uh, is so clear that uh, it's actually mostly been gathered from orbit, the kinds of experiments we're, we're doing now with Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. You can see quite clear evidence for coastlines, river deltas, uh, river valleys, uh, runoff from precipitation. There are the, the polar caps, which are solid water ice and they're carbon dioxide ice varying seasonally. But the geological record that's so clear you can even read it from space uh, shows that Mars used to be much more Earth-like with liquid water on the surface, with running water and with clouds and rain. I think there were also some meteorites on the surface that were rather interesting. Yes, and, and the exposed rock faces in the small craters that they visited uh, were even better. Once you get into um, being able to see strata of ancient rocks, then you're going back in time when you look at these and analyze them. And one of the big discoveries by Spirit and Opportunity was the uh, amount of uh, sulfate deposit there is on Mars. Sulfates are produced in watery environments, and so are carbonates, which have proved to be much rarer, but they must be there. They're probably at a greater depth than Spirit and Opportunity were ever able to probe. 
And I'll bet you that in a year's time, we'll be talking about um, measurements by curiosity of carbonate deposits in uh, Gale Crater. And speaking of curiosity, it's often been described as being the size of a family car. How does it compare to Spirit and Opportunity? Oh, it's much bigger. It's about 10 times bigger. And uh, yes, it is. It is rather like a car. It's uh, it's actually, I think it weighs pretty much exactly the same as a Mini Cooper, I think is the analogy NASA likes to use. So it, it, it's, it's very much larger. It's much more powerful. It's nuclear powered rather than using solar cells. So it can go further and faster and climb steeper hills and all that kind of thing. But the main thing is it can carry a lot more scientific payload. And that means bigger instruments, more instruments, uh, more sophisticated instruments to do analysis. If size, weight, engineering wasn't a problem, what sorts of instruments would we actually want to be putting on Mars if we could just teleport them there? Oh, I think top of the list would probably be a big drill. There, and there are plans to do this. Uh, when I say a big drill, I mean a really big drill, something that's capable of going down maybe half a mile or, or, or further because uh, the the warm, wet era on Mars that I was alluding to uh, has left deposits that we'd like to examine. But in the lowlands, these deposits are buried under under millions of years of accumulation of soil. So we have to go fairly deep to find the water that's there now, which is uh, frozen at the higher levels, but probably liquid further down. And uh, also the uh, the remnants of that of that more Earth-like time. So drilling down is the thing. Now, uh, Curiosity can drill a short distance. The uh, European rover, which will be launched in a few years' time, has a somewhat deeper drill. It can go down about two meters. But as I say, we'd really like hundreds of meters or even thousands of meters would be great. But to do that, you have to you know, erect a huge sort of derrick and um, and feed uh, drills in piece by piece. And it's not the sort of thing you can do from even the size of Curiosity. It would take a much bigger effort, possibly even involving humans uh, actually assembling it and operating it. Now, how did NASA go about selecting a site for landing Curiosity? Uh, you assemble a team, actually several teams uh, of people that are interested and knowledgeable, and you have hundreds, I nearly said thousands, it might be thousands, I lost count uh, of meetings, and you argue, and you um, people develop favorites, and they make the case for that, and people with other favorites try to shoot them down, and there's a sort of bun fight, um, which, which lasted over many years, there were lots of these meetings, lots of different views expressed, lots of candidates, I think the uh, the last count I saw, there'd been nearly 150 candidate launch sites considered, and that was narrowed down to about six a few years ago, two and a half years ago. And these six were studied in massive detail, using in part the uh, instruments that are already at Mars on the satellites orbiting Mars that are still operating. Most importantly, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a very large satellite with big instruments on it, spectrometers and cameras. So once the sites had been narrowed down to six, they were they were studied minutely with the high-resolution camera and the other instruments. And then uh, there was a final battle and uh, Gale Crater came out top, but there are plenty of other good places. That, uh, you, you could really have spun a coin and still come up with something good because there was so much choice. And how long can we expect Curiosity to carry on exploring Gale Crater? It's designed to operate for a Martian year, which is two of our years approximately. But um, it's capable of going on much longer than that. And as we know, um, Spirit and Opportunity far exceeded their nominal lifetime. So once the uh, first Martian year is up, uh, it's very likely that it will continue. NASA has to vote extra money to keep the teams together and so on. But I'd be very surprised if they don't do that as long as the rover is still operating and still healthy because it can keep moving around and finding new sites and climbing mountains and things like that. So uh, it's anybody's guess how long it will actually be. It depends on fortune to a considerable extent, but I, I would have thought we could look forward to four or five years with uh, just a modicum of luck. Thanks very much, Fred. That's Fred Taylor, Emeritus Professor of Physics at Oxford University, and we will come back to Fred later on in the show with your questions about curiosity.
This is Naked Astronomy with Dominic Ford and me, Ben Valsler. Still to come, we'll hear from Robert Massey with this month's roundup of news from the Royal Astronomical Society. But first, Mohammed Al Hakim asks if telescopes can only see backwards in time and if it's a problem to not be able to see the distant universe as it is today. We put this to Sarah Thompson from the Detector Physics Group at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. Okay, so light, no matter what kind it is, optical, radio, infrared, etc., it all travels at a finite speed. This speed is roughly 300 million metres per second, or 700 million miles per hour. So this is so fast that generally the time taken for the light to travel from the object to the observer is negligible. But in space, the distances between objects are so vast that even something travelling at this speed takes a significant amount of time to get anywhere. For example, even the light we see when looking at the sun is taking eight minutes to reach us, and the next nearest star is 4.2 light years away from us, that's roughly 24 million million miles. And as for the next closest galaxy to ours, Canis Major, the light that comes from that is already 25,000 years old by the time it gets to us. So it's a bit like if you were living in London and you tried to look at Aberdeen, say, you'd be seeing that in the Roman Age. And then you're looking at Birmingham, and it's the 16th century. But this isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, by developing more and more sensitive telescopes and detectors, we can in fact see objects that are further and further away, and therefore light that was admitted at a much earlier time. One of the problems with observing an object that's very far away is that as the light travels from it to us, it's spreading out over a larger area. So very little of the light that was originally emitted or reflected by the object actually reaches us. And then, of course, that's the light that's reaching Earth. Then you're pointing a small disk at this object and you're hoping to get some light from it. So bigger is better here. Basically, if you can build something with a large collecting area, you're going to receive more light from that object. And the more light you get, the stronger the image you're going to be able to create and the further away you'll be able to see. So that's why we're building larger telescopes like the SKA and ALMA. So you see, these observations of the universe basically evolving that we can watch in real time are key not only to building working theories of the universe today, but also allow us to see a little bit of how it might be in the future. More questions coming up later. For now, Dominic, what have you seen in this month's science news? Well, we know that stars come in a huge range of sizes, going right from brown dwarfs, which might have a mass of less than a tenth that of our own sun, right up to huge stars like Betelgeuse, which have about 20 times the mass of our own sun. But it's interesting to ask whether there are hard limits to the lowest and highest masses that a star could possibly have. And theorists who model the processes of star formation think that there are hard limits. If, for example, you have a gas cloud which is trying to collapse down to form a star and it has less than a twentieth of the mass of our own sun, then it will never start the processes of nuclear fusion which are needed to power a star. And at the opposite end of the spectrum, if a star has more than 150 times the mass of our own sun, the violent pulsations as that gas cloud tries to collapse will be so violent that they will pull the cloud apart so it can't collapse down to form a core and a star. But this work was cast into some doubt by a study in 2010 by a group at the University of Bonn led by Sam Baron Banerjee. They studied a star-forming region in the large Magellanic cloud called the Trantla Nebula, and in that star-forming region they spotted four stars with masses of, they think, about 400 times the mass of the Sun. So these are incredibly huge stars that make even Betelgeuse look tiny. So in last week's podcast, we heard about impossible stars that were impossible because they were orbiting each other so close together. And this month, we're hearing about impossible stars that are impossibly large. That's right. The explanation is actually perhaps quite similar because according to a follow-up paper that the team have published this week in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, these stars may be easier to explain than was previously thought. The group modelled the star-forming region where these stars are 
which is one of the most prodigious star-forming regions in our local group of galaxies. And by tracing the motion of these stars in their own gravity, they found that it was statistically quite likely that there have been collisions between stars in this cluster. And in fact, it's quite likely that none of these stars was over 150 solar masses at the time when it formed, but stars have collided together to form much larger conglomerates. And what we're seeing in these 400 solar mass stars are in fact conglomerates of stars which have merged together to form much larger stars. So does that mean that you still have lots of separate cores and they all exist within one enormous envelope or has it all formed and properly merged and now what we have is one star that happens to be far bigger than it could have formed without this merging process? In fact, when stars get so close together that their outer envelopes start to rub against one another, you rapidly start to get an awful lot of friction. And what that means is that within a matter of a few years, the gas reaches a new equilibrium state as as a larger star, and it's indistinguishable from a star which formed with a mass of 400 solar masses. So they really are just enormous stars that happen to have come together, like we think galaxies form by merging smaller galaxies together. The same process seems to be happening for individual stars. Yes, in the um, medium term, this is not a good thing for these stars because stars of this mass burn their fuel incredibly quickly, and that means these stars have less than a million years to live before they will have burnt out all their fuel and they will end their lives in type 2 supernovae. Well, thank you very much, Dominic. This week, a team in Barcelona have announced that they have signed a launch service contract for a Chinese rocket to carry their lander to the moon. The Barcelona Moon Team is taking part in the Lunar X Prize. This is a Google-sponsored competition with an unprecedented $30 million payout for the winning team. The aim is to stimulate innovation and create revolutions by encouraging private missions to the moon, with the ultimate aim of creating frequent, inexpensive lunar trips both for scientific and for financial gain. Now, registration closed back in December 2010, and there are now 26 teams from all over the globe who are in the process of designing, planning, testing and fundraising for their own lunar missions. To win this huge sum, they need to be the first team able to send a robot to the moon that is capable of travelling at least 500 metres and transmitting video, images and data back down to Earth. So what's the timescale for this? Are we expecting this in the next few months? Oh, well, I think the next few months is quite optimistic. No, it's going to be a few years, but the point of this was that it's it's merely the first two demonstrators. So there isn't a time limit. The XPRIZE people haven't said you must do this by 2014. But there is a condition that if a government-sponsored mission gets there first and starts doing the same sort of things, then some of that prize money does get taken away. So there is a, a bit of a push to do it quickly, but I don't think people actually have launches planned at the moment. Interestingly, the second prize winners get a smaller but still not insignificant $5 million. And uh, the Spanish team have also taken an extra step, which I think is really nice, that they've designed in an extra 25 kilograms payload capability, and they're going to offer that to universities, to commercial enterprises like pharmaceutical companies, for example, as an opportunity to, to show them what commercial access to the moon could do for them. The other interesting thing about this is that the Lunar X Prize organisers expect that the teams will actually ultimately spend more money than the prize itself in order to achieve the goal. They point out, for a comparison, that teams in previous competitions like the DARPA challenges regularly spend two and a half times as much as the final winnings or even up to five times the prize value just in order to actually achieve the task. The original space-based XPRIZE, the Ansari XPRIZE, was awarded to the Tier 1 project for launching a reusable space plane known as Spaceship One into space twice within two weeks. The technology and the engineering challenges that were met by the Spaceship One team are now going into the rapidly developing space tourism business, and the competition itself then inspired the Lunar X Prize. So the Lunar X Prize people are hoping to do the same. They want to see technological problems solved, and they want to inspire and educate the next generation of scientists and engineers to go on and do more of this. 
The Barcelona Moon team's announcement shows that the competition is now hotting up and it's moving on to the next stage of thinking about how you're actually going to get them there. And they really are setting themselves up at the head of the pack. So look out, Moon, here they come. So is this purely about technology or is there any science that might come out of this? I think the ultimate aim is that they will then be able to sell data on to people like NASA. So as well as encouraging the sort of commercial exploitation of the moon, they're hoping to reduce the costs for national bodies in order to make their own missions a bit more efficient. So uh, there aren't any specific science goals of this mission that I'm aware of, but the idea is that the data will be there, the capabilities will be there, and if it's a lot cheaper and easier to get robots onto the moon, then it should, in theory, be easier to open the doors up for more science missions. And what are the commercial possibilities for exploring the moon? Well, that's quite an interesting question because... The arguments are that there may be resources on the moon that we could use. At the moment, I don't think they know exactly how they can exploit the moon, but they're fairly certain that somebody will find a way, and so we need to open the door to let them. And now, with a roundup of things to watch out for from the Astronomical Society, here's Robert Massey. One of the nice things that's coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks is the departure of the Dawn mission, which is a, a NASA probe that's been studying two objects in the asteroid belt, from the fairly large object Vesta to head off towards another one, Ceres. Now, asteroids, I suppose the popular interpretation of those is that they're lumps of rock, you know, that there's not that much that's interesting about them. But actually, the the big ones, the ones that are in uh, predominantly between Mars and Jupiter, that we call main belt asteroids, can tell us an awful lot about the early solar system. And the reason is that they're far enough from the sun that they're not quite so affected by the heating of the sun. And yet they're also quite similar to the objects that went on to form the planets. And the Dawn mission's been studying Vesta for about a year now, and it's made some pretty pretty amazing discoveries, actually. It's not a very big world. It's only about uh, 550 kilometers across, but nonetheless it manages to have a, an iron core inside, which suggests that at one time it had the whole sort of geological uh, processes going on. In other words, a magma ocean, so liquid rock inside as well. It also has a mountain, which is 23 kilometers high, and that mountain is in the center of an impact crater, which is 90% as wide as the asteroid itself. So, you know, these are not boring places. I mean, fortunately, the good thing is that, you know, most of this, these very violent processes seem to have stopped now, but they've certainly had a very interesting past. It sounds like an incredible technical and engineering challenge to be able to send something out to investigate one asteroid and then to be able to move it on to another one. You're absolutely right. I mean, this is, you know, this is a multi-year, multi-target mission. And I think, you know, if you look at the kind of things engineers are able to achieve, you know, not just sending things into Earth orbit, but to the moon, the other planets, uh, all the way out to Pluto in the next few years, to control them with such precision, to, you know, develop ion engines, literally almost electric engines that throw out charged particles in the back and these probes can accelerate for a long time, very low thrust, but very efficiently, and they can carry on doing this sort of work for years and years. Now, I think it's an incredible achievement, and they, they bring them into within a sort of few hundred kilometers of the surface of these objects, you know, in some, in some ways quite risky maneuvers, but most of the time they get away with it, and they send back them at the incredible pictures we're used to. I think really, on the whole, with the exception of Mars, which seems to uh, be a very challenging target, once a space mission actually takes off, then on the whole it's very likely to work. So what are we expecting to see in the coming months? Will it be doing the same sorts of analysis that it was doing on Vesta? Well, it, it actually takes three years to get there. So it comes back to that kind of engineering challenge again. It leaves Vesta and then it goes into an orbit which takes it slightly further away from the sun towards Ceres, the largest of all the asteroids that we know about, at least the ones between Mars and Jupiter. And it's big enough that it's also been classified as a dwarf planet as well because it's fairly round and it's got some characteristics of a planet. And this world, it won't get there till February 2015, but it, it's considered to be very different. Vesta is quite dry. Ceres is seen as quite wet because there's a lot of evidence that it's got an awful lot of water ice there. And, and one suggestion I was reading a couple of papers earlier is that it actually has more fresh water locked up in its surface than the Earth does in all its oceans. So really quite an impressive figure. It's, uh, it's a, basically a, a combination of rock and ice and therefore you know, a really interesting target. Now that makes it sound a lot like a comet and we've had other missions to actually land on the surface of comets as well. So are we actually going to learn more about this slightly hazy definition between what's a comet and what's an asteroid? There, there seems to be quite a lot of debate about this. I mean, you can you can sort of define comets as being worlds that are very, very icy, and you know that um, they tend to be rather smaller as well, and they tend to be in quite eccentric orbits that bring them in close to the sun. But there are exceptions to that, and there are undoubtedly crossovers. So, 
I think, you know, who knows? Maybe if you did bring Ceres towards the sun on a, on a sort of much more, uh, well, an orbit that perhaps crossed the orbit of the Earth, then you would see it developing a tail. I mean, having said that, it's probably a good thing it doesn't, because I, I don't think I really want a thousand-kilometer world uh, careering around the inner solar system. <laughs> so now going from a mission that we're looking forward to seeing in the future to some stuff that's already been published, what exciting news has come out recently? Well, there's a, there's a couple of uh, really nice science stories that have come out in the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, one of them is about a precursor to a so-called supernova star. Now, we see supernovae, very, really cataclysmic explosions all the time, but they're generally in quite distant galaxies. It's just simply that these stars reach the end of their life. Uh, they end their lives very violently, and you see this brilliant, well, I'd say flash, but it usually lasts for, for weeks, months at a time as the explosion fades away. It's actually quite difficult to know exactly which stars are going to go through this process. There's two main types of supernova. The most common one, type 2 and 1b and 1c, and that they're described as, are where you have a very, very massive star that runs out of fuel, and because it runs out of fuel, the pressure outwards, the heat, the engine basically in the center stops working when nuclear fusion shuts down, and the core collapses and the star is destroyed in a really violent uh, rebound. There is another uh, type, which is often brighter and uh, somewhat different, which is where you have a binary star system. You have one star that's usually quite, quite a giant star for one reason or another, close to a so-called white dwarf star. And, and a white dwarf is the, the remnant that you'll get after the sun exhausts its fuel and reaches the end of its life. But if you have a, a large star near one of these in a binary system, the strong gravitational pull of the white dwarf can drag material off it. And over a period of hundreds of thousands, millions of years, there can be so much material piling up that you get a very, very violent explosion. And in extreme cases, an explosion that's violent enough to destroy the whole system. And these are of great interest to astronomers because they seem to take place um, when there's the mass accumulated by the white dwarf is about the same. And what that means is that the, the violence, the explosion, and the brightness of it is about the same as well. But it's very difficult to know which stars are actually going to do this. And a U.S. group has found an object called Q.U. Carini, and they've looked for signs that it's about to go into this phase. Now, you can sound very alarmist when you say that kind of thing. This object's a long way off, um, and when I say about to, you know, you're probably talking any time within the next million years. But it does seem to be going through the initial stages of reaching this point, and if that's confirmed, I mean, I'm sure the scientists would be delighted if it became a supernova in the next few years because they'd, they'd probably win a Nobel Prize for being some of the first people to predict one. But it would be the first time that we've seen this kind of object and made that sort of prediction. So it's interesting stuff. I mean, the, the purposes of history, the last time one like this was visible to the, to the naked eye was right back in 1572 when people, including uh, Tycho Brahe, who's very famous for cataloging a lot of the uh, positions of planets and stars, saw one at the end of the 16th century then. So, um, but it's an but incredibly bright object, and it's close enough that you know, it would be visible in the sky for months and much brighter than Venus and so on. On now to something that actually, instead of putting a constraint on our understanding of the universe, it puts a constraint on our viewing of our own Milky Way. Light pollution is, of course, a big problem for people who want to see the stars, but it seems now that it's changing. Light pollution is, is absolutely the bane, certainly, of amateur astronomers' existence, and uh, I would also argue a lot of professional astronomers are affected by it, you know, if you, particularly in the United States, where the major observatories, say in the southwest in Arizona, find their view is affected by some of the big cities nearby, like Los Angeles and so on. But yes, that's right. There's a group in uh, Berlin, or a couple of groups in Berlin, that have worked together to measure the color of the night sky and measure the brightness of the night sky. And they produced a paper called Red is the New Black. It's by a guy called Christopher Kyber in uh, the, the Free University in, in Berlin. And uh, he's discovered that, um, yes, that the night sky is redder than it used to be, which is no great surprise because we've got all the lights, the street lights across Europe and across the world that are causing that. But also he's predicting and, me and uh, measuring a change that suggests it's getting somewhat bluer over time. He's developed a detector and he thinks that as we replace the sort of standard orange lights that we're familiar with in our cities with more modern LEDs that look a bit whiter and have a somewhat bluer color, that the color of the night sky is starting to mimic that. And if you think about the way the, this technology is coming in, it's probably only going to be a decade or two before that takes place across the world. And so instead of a, a red night sky, you end up with a blue one. Now, aesthetically, that might sound a little better, but the the impact might be even worse in the sense that if you mimic a, a blue color in the sky, it may be much worse for wildlife that you know basically sees some of the characteristics of daylight in that. So they are concerned about it. They're arguing very carefully, saying that you know this is a, an unpredictable thing that's going on here. We don't know what the consequences will be. 
that it's very important that if you design these lights, which most people prefer because you can you can see more easily, at least make sure that you don't scatter light onto the night sky. It's the usual stuff about good practice and making sure that they're shielded so you light up the ground rather than the sky above you. Even without the new LED technology, we ideally want to reduce the amount of light that goes upwards, that goes skywards. Are there certain tricks, certain engineering adaptations that we can make to try and reduce the level of light pollution at the moment? Well, there are, there are some really simple things that can be done, and, and some local authorities in the UK have done this, where you know, they protect observatories, for example, but you can, you can cut them off. You can put a, a shield over it, a reflecting shield, which directs the light downwards. So all it does, instead of scattering up, you know, I mean, I suppose if you look out of your bedroom window and you're near a street light, you see the light shining in, that, that can be reduced. And more, more importantly, it doesn't actually throw the light right up into the night sky, so it's, it's less wasteful as well because the light goes where you want it to if it's reflected down onto the ground rather than illuminating the air above. That's got to be a good thing. It, you know, in, in theory, at least, it can help cut energy bills too. Robert Massey from the RAS. This is Naked Astronomy with Ben Valsler and me, Dominic Ford. Earlier this year, researchers at Sapienza University in Rome, Italy, reported their conclusion that Saturn's moon Titan must have huge seas of liquid water beneath its surface. Using gravity field measurements taken by the Cassini spacecraft, Luciano S. and colleagues observed tidal distortions of the moon that simply wouldn't be possible without the presence of liquid water, as he explained to me. Titan is a moon orbiting Saturn, and is the second largest moon of the solar system. It orbits at about one million kilometers from Saturn. And Saturn is about nine times the distance from the Sun to the Earth. It's very interesting for several reasons. The first one is that we know there are a lot of hydrocarbons on the surface. We know that there is a thick atmosphere which is made up by nitrogen. There is a significant percentage of methane in the atmosphere. About 4% of the atmosphere is made up by methane. We know that there is a hydrological cycle, so it rains. On Titan there are lakes, there are rivers. Of course, it's not water which creates rivers and lakes. It's just liquid hydrocarbons. It's too cold for liquid water to exist on the surface. And now uh, we have discovered also that there is liquid water underneath the surface of Titan. So all these ingredients make Titan probably the closest object in the solar system to the Earth. Now, I know that the Cassini spacecraft has extensively imaged the surface of Titan, and the Huygens probe has even landed there but I guess it's much more difficult to know what's beneath the surface. Yes, this is true. And on the Earth, for example, we know a lot about what's uh, underneath the surface because uh, we are studying earthquakes. But without the possibility of detecting and studying earthquakes on a body, the only possibility to understand, unveil the interior structure comes from gravity, uh, rotation and magnetic fields. Titan has not a magnetic field. So we have to rely on rotation and gravity. I guess my very simple view of that would be that Titan's a spherical body with a spherical gravitational field. But you're saying there's changes in that gravitational field that tell us what's beneath the surface. Exactly. What is changing is uh, the gravity field. And actually, Titan is not purely spherical. It's like uh, it's elongated... uh, in a cigar-like or a football uh, shape uh, with the long axis pointing to Saturn. And also there is fatter at the equator, pretty much like uh, the Earth. So that's because of the rotation of Titan that it's been stretched about its waist? Exactly. The rotation is one effect, and the other effect is the tidal field generated by Saturn. But the interesting thing, and this is what we measured actually, is that this shape changes along the orbit. Every 16 days, Titan changes slightly its shape and becomes more elongated when it's closer to Saturn and less elongated when it's farther away from Saturn. 
So Titan's a bit like a rubber ball, which is being stretched as it's orbiting around Saturn. Exactly. That's uh, the correct picture. So what does that tell us about the interior? Well, the deformations that we have measured are so large that only a liquid layer under the surface can provide uh, such a deformation. If Titan were completely solid, made up uh, of only rocks, uh, then it would not have been deformed much. While we have seen uh, tides which correspond to a deformation of about 10 meters. If Titan uh, were completely solid, uh, the deformation would have been maximum one meter. And this is an indication, it's essentially it's a smoking gun, uh, and tells us uh, that uh, there must be some liquid layer inside which uh, decouples the core, which is made up uh, by rocks, uh, by silicates, uh, from the outer layers. So what you're saying is that because water is a fluid that can flow, as the moon is being stretched that can flow and change the moon's shape far more than solid ice could do. Exactly. Even in the case of the Earth, uh, the crust uh, goes up and down uh, every day, actually twice a day, by about 40 centimetres, because uh, the interior of the Earth uh, is liquid. And so the same effect uh, takes place. These are called the solid tides. Everybody is uh, familiar with the ocean tides, But in addition, also the crust of the solid earth deforms with tides which have an amplitude of about 40 centimetres. Now, I guess when people hear about water on bodies in the solar system, the obvious question is always, could that water support life? Well, the discovery of water does not imply life, of course. But it's difficult to think to life without liquid water. So Titan, uh, from the point of view of uh, astrobiology, is a very interesting object uh, because there are hydrocarbons, uh, there is a cycle of liquids uh, on the surface, there is liquid water, so there are essentially all the ingredients uh, that uh, are necessary to build up life. However, the onset of life is more likely if the ocean is in contact uh, with rocks, so the ocean bottom is made up by rocks. Now, in terms of the next step, I know Cassini is still an operating spacecraft, so will you be taking more data, and are there other moons that you could study in a similar way? Yes. In fact, Cassini will orbit Saturn and visit all its moons until 2017, when NASA essentially will kill the spacecraft and the spacecraft will plunge into Saturn's atmosphere. From now to 2017, we have three additional flybys devoted to gravity. And with these flybys, we hope to reduce the uncertainties in the measurement that we have done. And there are essentially three models of the interior that are compatible with our measurements. And we will be more able to discriminate among these three models. We will be able probably to say whether tides led also to dissipation of energy. So if tides produce heat in the interior. Luciano S. from Sapienza University in Rome. Now, Saturn is best known for its rings. Saturn's rings contain all sorts of intricate structures, ranging from gaps carved out by nearby moons to ripples which the Cassini spacecraft has spotted in the wake of passing moons. But we've had an email from Mark Wilson, who wonders why the material in the rings hasn't coalesced into moons. We put this to Sam George from the Astrophysics Group at the Cavendish Laboratory. Well, Saturn's rings are extended from about 7,000 to 80,000 kilometres above Saturn's equator. And the rings are mostly made out of pure water ice. The gaps are thought to be due to the gravitational pull of Saturn's tiny moons, which shepherd the material around. Um, A good example of this is Prometheus and Pandora, which orbit inside and outside of a ring of material. Uh, But before we look at the creation of moons, it's worth considering how the rings are formed in the first place. Uh, It's thought that they were either created by a small moon that's shattered by meteor impacts, though this doesn't seem to give the right content of rock, or, which is now, I guess, the more 
accepted idea is that a moonlight titan um, with a rocky core and an ice mantle would have spiraled around Saturn early in the solar system history. The tidal forces from Saturn would have ripped off the ice mantle, distributing the material into a ring. Now, of course, there is some suggestion about the stability of these rings. Are these rings stable over time or are they things that come and go? We know of rings in all of the gas giants. So one might think that these rings have actually been around for quite some time. We don't know. Um, it's a nice scientific curiosity at the moment that we're trying to understand. Um, there's people on both sides of the argument. I mean, there's some, even some suggestion that maybe Mars would gain a ring if its two moons, I say moons, like captured asteroids, uh, would collide together and maybe distribute material in orbit. We just don't honestly know that answer. Now, for a moon to form, the material has to collapse gravitationally. This doesn't happen too close to a planet. As Professor S explained earlier, moons experience a tidal force. So the closer to the planet the moon is, the stronger this force is. For a moon to form, it has to be at a certain distance away. The closest distance at which a moon can form is called the Roche limit. Inside of this Roche limit, the tidal force of the planet is too strong. And this is why moons don't form very close to the surface of a planet, but will form further away. There are, of course, moons in the rings. Um, these moons would have formed further out, and over time they would have slowly migrated uh, toward their current position. That's almost all we have time for, but first let's go back to our guest this week, Professor Fred Taylor, to tackle some of your questions about Mars and curiosity. Now, first of all, there's a question from Joseph Katz, and we've already alluded to the electrical power that curiosity actually has on board and the fact that it's nuclear rather than solar, but how much computing power does curiosity have? Joseph comments that earlier missions were underpowered because of the need to protect them from the rather harsh environmental conditions. How does it compare, say, to a modern computer? Oh, it's pretty old-fashioned compared to a modern computer. Um, you have to go back about uh, 10 years to find a... Well, a bit less than 10 years, actually. Let's say eight years to find a desktop uh, PC that would be running at the same sort of level. I think the um, core memory is uh, four gigabytes, if I remember correctly. And, of course, now we'd expect to have a a lot more than that. You can get that much on a data stick. So it's not fantastic if you compare it to modern desktops. And of course, the reason for this is that uh, you don't send brand new technology to Mars. You send uh, technology which is proven and which is reliable and which has been tested to death to make sure that it's not going to pack up on you. That's one reason. Another reason is the, the, the rover has been under development for that whole time, that, that eight years. So you, you don't uh, want to keep switching once you've made a plan and got a budget and got all your experts in place and so on. And then finally, you don't actually need massive amounts of computing power on the spacecraft. Uh, mostly what it has to do is, is gather the data, drive the vehicle, uh, keep it safe, operate the cameras and so on. Uh, but the, the actually heavy-duty processing is done back on Earth, and that's where we want it. One thing that we have heard since the successful landing is that NASA now needed to upload a new operating system for it. Why did we need to do that, and what's the difference between the two? Well, the, the, the software that was installed during the landing was, was, was actually uh, work, working to support the landing. And those, those early uh, fuzzy pictures that we saw right after touchdown and so on, they were all obtained using uh, uh, a software suite that was designed to work through the low-gain communication system that has a very low data rate relative to what it has when everything's up and running. So uh, the idea being obviously to get something back quickly to get an idea of what the landing site was like and to check that everything seemed to be okay. And then there were all sorts of other functions that the spacecraft had to do on the way down. It was it fired some enormous number of pyrotechnic devices to release the parachutes and things like that. I think nearly 100, if I remember rightly. But of course, once you're down, you don't need that. You need something else. You need the uh, software that allows you to navigate across the surface of Mars. So the old software has been overwritten by the new. Now, we've had a question from Phil Reynolds, who remembers that Spirit and Opportunity have had problems keeping their solar panels clear of dust. Is that why Curiosity has a nuclear power source? Yes, partly, but, but mainly you can just get a lot more power from a, um, an RTG, as they're called. 
because the rover is so big, it needs uh, uh, a lot more electrical power to drive it. And also it's nice if it can go faster and up steeper hills and things like that. So having lots of power is a really good thing. So the size of the solar cells that would have been necessary for a rover this big with the capabilities we wanted to would have been huge, even if they never got covered with dust. So all, all of those reasons. And having a radioactive source, does that create other problems that we need to get around? Is it likely to, or is it possible that it could do some damage to, say, the computing works inside it? No, not really, because, uh, I mean, all of that's taken into account in the design. The radioactive part is is actually uh, mounted outside the uh, main body of the spacecraft. That's partly for thermal reasons. It generates so much heat that it has to it has to cool to to the atmosphere. But it's also to keep it away from the uh, sensitive devices and there's enough shielding to make sure that it's not a problem. There's likely to be a lot of news in the next few weeks about Curiosity's progress. Fred, what can we expect to hear? We can expect the rover to start moving, but probably not for, I think, a few days yet, maybe a week. Once it's finished loading the new software, it'll be continuing to test out all of the equipment and probably moving a short distance just to test the motors and so on. But for serious motion, uh, we're looking ahead a little bit. And then it'll uh, start moving in the general direction of Mount Sharp, the idea being that uh, some of the richest pickings in terms of science are probably in the foothills of the mountain, which is quite some distance away. It's uh, nearly 10 miles away. So it'll start to move in that direction. Exactly what happens is up to the science team and the operations team, and they, they meet every day, sometimes several times a day, to look at the pictures that they're getting as they're moving along and the information they're getting, decide whether to stop in an area because it's interesting or whether to press on. So there'll be a long meander to the mountain, which will be driven by daily decisions about the uh, science that's available. And if there are any technical problems, of course, they'll come in as well. Thank you very much, Fred Taylor, Professor Emeritus at Oxford University. If you have a space science question that you'd like answered, send it in to us at astronomy at thenakedscientists.com or tweet at Naked Scientists. That's it for this month's Naked Astronomy. We'll be back next month with more space science, so please keep your questions and comments coming in. You can find all of the previous Naked Astronomy podcasts, along with space boffins, on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by Dominic Ford and me, Ben Valsler, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.